Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we step on the Appalachian Trail with one of America's most accomplished hikers, Jennifer Farr Davis. Growing up in the Southern Appalachians, I had always heard of the Appalachian Trail. I had never set foot on it. I'd only spent two nights outdoors before. You know, I was 21, so I thought, well, hiking's technically just walking. How hard could it be? And this summer, dozens of West Virginia students will attend workshops at the Augusta Heritage Center where they'll learn some important skills. It's not just preserving and learning the music or learning the dance, craft, folklore, or any of the other traditional foodways or folkways we celebrate. It's also about being a part of a living community. We'll also visit the steel drum capital of America, which believe it or not, is right here in Appalachia. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Most people outside of Appalachia, even if they don't know much about the region, have at least heard of the Appalachian Trail, which stretches from Georgia to Maine. And few people know the Appalachian Trail better than Jennifer Farr Davis, a North Carolina native who's thru-hiked the AT three times. In 2008, on her second thru-hike, she set the record for the fastest Appalachian Trail hike by a woman. Three years later, she thru-hiked it again, and this time set the record for the fastest known time on the Appalachian Trail by anyone up to that point. Davis continues to blaze new pathways and has become a celebrity in the world of outdoor recreation. I invited her on to talk about some of her hikes and how they shaped her identity as an Appalachian. Jennifer Farr Davis, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia and speaking with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So you have thru-hiked everywhere. You've thru-hiked the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail. How did you first get into this, though? How did you first get into hiking and these long-distance hikes? You know, without realizing it, I think the mountains were just always a part of me. I grew up in Western North Carolina and looking around, like I always saw the mountains and always saw the forest and quite frankly, took it for granted and thought it was normal and thought everywhere must be that beautiful. Um, But then I started traveling, I went to college and and really it was when I graduated college at 21, um, you know, faced this problem of really not knowing what to do with my life, where I was going to go, what I was going to do for work, who I really was. And I just wanted time and a place to figure things out. So growing up in the Southern Appalachians, I had always heard of the Appalachian Trail. I had never set foot on it. I'd only spent two nights outdoors before, but I thought, hey, I know it's a long trail. It usually takes five or six months to hike. Sounds like an adventure, seems affordable. You know, I was 21, so I thought, well, hiking's technically just walking. How hard could it be? And so I set off on my own from Georgia with the goal of walking all the way to Maine. And after five months, I made it there and I was a different person. And, you know, I've never looked back after that. I've, I've very much felt like a part of me belongs outdoors in the forest. And you've hiked the Appalachian Trail three times, I guess. What, what pulls you back? What's pulled you back to that particular through hike? I mean, the Appalachians, they have my heart, really does. And there is some sense of roots and, and connection and in the United States, especially, so many of us are looking for our roots and, and taking DNA tests and, and trying to find out who am I? Where did I come from? What's, what's my heritage? What's my culture? And I think at some point in my life, I just decided I was Appalachian. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I'm a mutt, but this is where I'm born. This is where I grew up. This is where I choose to live. And going to the Appalachian Trail. Because hiking all over the world, you realize different places, different mountains, they all have different different feels, different energies. And the Appalachians, to me, are always just this wise, maternal, wrinkled old grandmother or great-grandmother who is so welcoming and so wise and just wants to you know, invite you in and, and share wisdom. And so when I'm on the Appalachian Trail, just... The beauty is in the the details and the biodiversity and the fact that the mountains are 
some of the oldest in the world, if not the oldest, like that essence and spirit is there. And every time I go out there and hike, whether it's the full Appalachian Trail or just taking my kids out, I think that is, you know, that is what I'm taking home with me, the, the wisdom and the nurturing spirit of Appalachia. So you mentioned how you took to the Appalachian Trail partly to find yourself, and then you allude to a point in time in which you decided that you were Appalachian, like that's, that's part of your identity. Do you remember a pivotal moment that helped crystallize that thought for you along the way? Yes. And it's funny because I think so much of the transformation or growth or lessons or what you have it on long distance trails happens over time. It's not something that occurs in a moment. But I did have an experience when I was hiking over the ridges of Roan Mountain, which is on the border of North Carolina and Tennessee. And it's one of those places where you you hike out on this grassy ridge and you get 360 degree views there I was at sunset and I could see undeveloped mountains all around me and the sky was changing color and the mountains were, you know, changing colors at the end of the day. And I was the only one up there and I could hear the birds and the flame azalea had started to bloom. And it it's also like a spruce fir mountain. So it smells like Christmas, even in the spring. And there I was in that moment looking around and it just hit me that I was a part of it. Like I was a part of nature. I was a part of that scene. And at first that didn't make sense to me because growing up, you know, I thought nature was cool, beautiful, but it was out the window. Like I saw it as separate. And there, here I was in this moment looking around and I was like, wait a minute, (laughs) like biologically, I am a part of all this. And then I thought it, you know, I thought about it through kind of like my spiritual lens. And I was like, yeah, I really, I think I'm a part of creation. Like I'm a part of nature. And, and when I accepted that truth, I was changed. Like right away, I remember like feeling filled up. And the first thing I think that changed was I felt beautiful, like beautiful, not in a cultural societal way, not in a billboard magazine, social media type of way. Like I felt beautiful because I felt connected to mountains and forest and wildflowers. And like, it was just such a powerful sense of beauty. And then I felt a little bit wild and I started to feel responsible for what was around me because, you know, now I see myself as a part of this ecosystem. So that moment looking around and realizing that I was a part of nature and a part of Appalachia, that truly changed my life. I understand you collaborated on the creation of a book that came out in 2019 titled, I Come From a Place, Appalachian Watercolors of the Serpentine Chain. Do you have an excerpt from that you wouldn't mind reading for us? These are not mountains that pride themselves on distant views and vast horizons. This is a land of details and knowledge. There are more stories, truths, and mysteries hidden under the thick canopy of the Appalachians than could ever be counted. And the annals are ever increasing. The aura of her calling is symbolized by the conglomeration of minerals known as serpentine that lie beneath her surface. For centuries, the serpentine stone has been revered for its ability to bring out inner strength, create new pathways, and conjure wisdom. This primal rock with its green hues connects the mountain chain with a Celtic spirit that is mostly unseen but always felt an omnipresent aura that is resilient, resourceful, and sage. This is the Serpentine Chain. Thank you. Yeah. So how did that book come together? Um, That book is actually, it's an artistic collaboration between myself and Alan Shuptrine, who's a really renowned watercolor artist from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And he really, you know, he's the true talent. He did the lion's share of the work for that book. Uh, But he also really empowered me, I think, as the artist who's writing the prose and, and sort of this long essay to go with the paintings. He wanted me to be really creative. Um, it, it was such a creative project. And it wasn't that hard for me to be creative at that time because I 
I had very young children (laughs) and I wasn't sleeping very much. And so my life already felt like this haze. And I think I just leaned into the creativity of like bringing life into the world, having young children, being sleep deprived. And part of the story for that book is this allegory. Um, so there's, there's truth and fact and statements about the Appalachian mountains in that book. And then there's this story that, that harkens back to my relationship with the Appalachian mountains and how it's always seemed like this wise old maternal guiding force. And so in, in the book, there's this, this story and this presence of this older woman who is showing the secrets of Appalachia to the reader. And it gets really trippy and fun. And so that was definitely a different type of story and writing for me. But I think in, uh, in the haze of young babies and sleep deprivation, some of my truest kind of feelings and connection to Appalachia came out through that writing. You've gone on to do more and more hikes, but I wanted to ask you, about one other hike in particular, and that's the mountains to sea hike. But I understand not only did you hike the entire thing, but but with an infant. I'd love to hear some of your stories and what that experience was like. Behind the Appalachian Trail, the Mountains to Sea Trail is probably my favorite. And for folks who are not familiar, it's a 1,200-mile footpath that stretches across the state of North Carolina from the Tennessee border to the Outer Banks. So when I approached that trail, um, the season of life I was in at that point, I had a four-year-old and I had, when we started the trail, my son was um, nine and a half months old. I knew that I wasn't going to walk with my children the entire way and had actually agreed to do the trail in support of the past 40th birthday, in support of the nonprofit friends organization that runs the trail. We really wanted this to be a wonderful engagement and PR effort for North Carolina, for trails, for the Appalachian Mountains, for all these good things that we love. So along the way, I was hiking and I was guiding hikes for groups. I was um, giving talks along the way and I was hosting fundraisers all in support (laughs) of this wonderful trail and organization. And by the way, I was nursing an infant and being mom to a, a four-year-old as well. And so the, the way logistically that worked, my husband would um, meet me at road crossings and I was hiking morning to night. We would try to camp together or stay with friends off trail. Uh, he was caring for the kids along the way during the day. But, you know, I was nursing my son before I started hiking in the morning and then the hike out, just totally, totally exhausted. I look back on that experience and in a lot of ways, it was harder than the AT record. I mean, the AT record that we set gets a lot of attention and feels like this sexy, ooh, fastest person on the trail. But in a lot of ways, I was more humbled and more challenged by trying to do the mountains to sea trail with two young children, caring for them, trying to navigate the relationship with my husband to the effort was like extremely difficult for him as well. And all doing it for a really good reason and a really good cause. So there were a lot of emotions and a lot of effort that went into that endeavor, which took three months for us to go from Tennessee to the Outer Banks. Wow, that that's amazing. And I think also a lot of um, young parents hearing this will will hear a, a, a metaphor for their lives as young parents of or parents of young children. Jennifer Farr Davis, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia and speaking with us. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me, and thanks that all you do to tell stories from this region. It's so great. That was Jennifer Farr Davis of North Carolina. She recently sold her business, Blue Ridge Hiking Company, to its longtime manager. She says she'll use the extra time to write and speak and pursue a graduate degree. By the way, this track we're hearing, it's called I'll Climb the Mountain With You, and it was written and performed by Jennifer's husband, Brew Davis. When the river bends dry as a bone, I'll climb the mountain with you. When the pictures start to fade And the second hand cuts like a blade 
when the hourglass has had its say. I'll climb the mountain with you. The EPA has ordered Norfolk Southern to begin testing for dioxins near the site of its train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. These long-lived chemicals can lead to serious health problems, including cancer. The Allegheny Front's Reed Frazier reports that fears over dioxin have some residents near the site anxious about their long-term health. From a window in her house, Tamara Freeze looks across the street at a line of train cars moving through East Palestine. She was standing in this spot the night of February 3rd. She'd just gotten home from work and watched as a line of Norfolk Southern trains burned a few hundred feet from her house. Yeah, I was standing here and you can, I mean, they have it blocked off, but like now see where like the trains go and those were like just all completely inflamed when I got home. She and her husband Nelson were mainly worried about casualties from the derailment. They didn't think about what was in those tank cars. Nelson heard that night they were carrying vinyl flooring. That didn't seem so bad. And I thought, well, that would make black smoke. You know, vinyl flooring would, you know, burn. I've seen it burn, carpet burn. You know, it gives off black smoke. But like then a I re- it was vinyl chloride. And then I said, oh, no, that is not good. To prevent a catastrophic tanker explosion, the vinyl chloride was intentionally burned, producing the infamous black smoke that was seen for miles. The freezes evacuated. They came back to their house, not quite knowing what was in that smoke. Tamara's reaction was to start cleaning up. All our glasses in our cupboard had film on them. And that's when I was like, okay, yep, I have to wash all our clothes, all our curtains, all our bedding, threw out all our pillows, just started washing every dish we owned. Like a lot of people in town, they started hearing about a toxic group of chemicals called dioxins. These can be created when chemicals that have chlorine in them, like vinyl chloride, burn. Carla Ng is an environmental engineer at the University of Pittsburgh who says dioxins can have long-term health consequences. Dioxins are famous for being extremely toxic organic chemicals and also bioaccumulative, which means that when you're exposed to them, they tend to stick around in your body and then even if the levels in the environment are quite low, they can build up over time. The reason for this, Ng says, is that dioxins are incredibly durable, so they last a long time. And they prefer fat to water, so they cluster in the fat cells of animals like humans and fish. So things that are water-soluble are really easy to get rid of in your body because you can just urinate them out. Uh, That's not the case for these chemicals, and so this means that they can have a, a lifetime in your body that's much longer, years, as opposed to hours or minutes. Nesta Bordy-Sam is an environmental toxicologist with the University of Pittsburgh. He says the body's typical response to breaking down chemicals from the environment doesn't really work on dioxins. The general idea for metabolism is to break the compound down for, so that it to be soluble for excretion. This does not always happen, and they're able to form other products that have a strong binding affinity with DNA. This can lead to serious health problems. According to the EPA, dioxins can cause cancer, damage the immune system, interfere with hormones, and cause reproductive and developmental problems. All of this is why Tamara Freeze has wanted more testing. For weeks, the EPA resisted local pressure to sample soil for dioxins before ordering the company to begin testing. The Pennsylvania DEP will also be doing some soil sampling for dioxins in Beaver County. Freeze says for her, it's not about propping up any kind of legal case against Norfolk Southern. I think it's so we know that our dog can safely go and roll around in the grass and we're not going to contaminate the air with cutting the the lawn in in the summer. Wanting to know if we can grow tomatoes and be safe to eat them. The freezes have been experiencing health problems, like a sore throat, inner ear issues, and skin problems. And they're not sure if they'll stay in East Palestine. Nelson Freeze says when they report out the results, government agencies shouldn't sugarcoat the long-term effects of the derailment. Just tell me the truth, you know. I'll make up my mind as long as I got the facts. I I can't really decide what I'm going to do until I know for sure what the hell it actually is. The freezes are split on whether to accept Norfolk Southern's offer to relocate while cleanup takes place. Tamara wants to leave, but Nelson doesn't want to be away from home for months at a time. So for now, they're staying in East Palestine. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Reed Frazier. Coming up, we'll talk with Seth Young, the executive director of the Augusta Heritage Center in Elkins, West Virginia. 
This year, the center is celebrating 50 years of promoting traditional arts and music, dance, craft, and folklore. What we mostly do is help everyday folks achieve their artistic goals and with that, find self-actualization and a community they belong to. That's after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Inside Appalachia is supported in part by the West Virginia Food and Farm Coalition, helping West Virginia farmers markets provide food harvested that morning and brought to you fresh from the farm. Local market locations available at farmfreshwv.com. The Augusta Heritage Center in Elkins, West Virginia has become a destination for the study and preservation of traditional arts, music, and crafts. Each year, it attracts thousands of visitors for its various folkways and foodways programs. To celebrate its 50th year, the center wants to bring more high school students to its summer workshops for free. Seth Young is the center's executive director. Producer Bill Lynch spoke with Young about the center's mission and plans for its summer workshops. Tell us about the Augusta Heritage Center. What is it? Sure. So the Augusta Heritage Center was founded in 1973 here in Elkins, West Virginia, by a group of citizens that were concerned that if there was not a framework to pass on uh, living information, especially when it comes to our own traditions and culture, that information was in danger of dying out. You know, this was pre-internet. And so it was identified that if a living master, let's say a fiddle player, for example, passed away without teaching anyone all of the fiddle tunes that they knew, um, that that information could go with them forever. And that every time one of these elders passed, it was as though a library were burned. And so these folks set out to preserve Appalachian culture, traditional Appalachian culture, to elevate it and to promote it. And then through that lens, form an understanding and appreciation for world traditional cultures. So while we focus on Appalachian traditional culture, we certainly present a wealth of world traditional cultures here as well. Um, Most notably, uh, the organization gained popularity for its Summer Heritage Workshop Series. So each summer, They would gather master artists from around the state and around the nation to teach folks that came in from all over the world. I I think it was like by 1978, out-of-state and out-of-nation participants were more than in-state participants. As the organization has grown, we've also come to understand our place as builders of community and how that seeks to address the challenges that face Appalachia today. So it's not just preserving and learning the music or learning the dance, craft, folklore, or any of the other traditional foodways or folkways we uh, celebrate. It's also about being a part of a living community of like-minded individuals. And so we have statewide networks right now that feel a sense of belonging as the result of our programming. We started out as cultural preservation, and we still are in, in that game for sure, but we've broadened out into the challenges that we're faced with today. Okay. About the uh, summer workshops. Sure. Uh, how many people come out for that? What's what's it like? How long does it last? Kind of just give me an overview of how that looks. Sure. It's three weeks long. It starts on July 9th. The first week we celebrate uh, classic country, swing, and Cajun and Creole cultures. And believe it or not, that first week, Elkins, West Virginia becomes the best place in the world to study Cajun and Creole culture. In fact, many people come up from uh, Louisiana to study with master artists that week. 
Uh, it also gets them out of the July heat of Louisiana, so it's a double win for them. Uh, that very next week, we have bluegrass and vocal programming. In 2019, we were named by the uh, International Bluegrass Association of Music, IBMA, right. with the event of the year. So bluegrass and vocal programming. And then the week after that, uh, we have blues and old-time programming. In a typical year, we'll have around 250 to 300 participants per week. We'll have about 50 master artists uh, engaged per week. So, you know, over the course of the three weeks, 150 master artists come through uh, our doors around, you know, let's say 750 to 1,000 students. Do you guys track what happens to some of the people who come and participate? Have you, you got any stars? Oh, sure. <laughs> there are many. Um, you know, probably most notably right now is Rhiannon Giddens, who uh, was, was a banjo student at here at the Augusta Heritage Center. She also benefited from programming down in North Carolina and was introduced to us, came up here, then was uh, made the transition from student to instructor. And now look at her. When we try to book her, they're like, you know, we got to call three years ahead of time. Uh, I mean, she's just taken the world by storm. That's just one of many, many stories of folks that have come through our ranks and uh, gone on to realize their musical dreams. But it goes beyond that, especially when you're, you're talking about that community building piece. To be able to fully express yourself creatively is like the pinnacle of the mount of what it means to be able to be a productive and happy person. And so what we mostly do is help everyday folks achieve their artistic goals and with that find self-actualization in a community they belong to. Uh, talk about the Academy. Uh, we're turning 50 years old, right? right? We had um, a meeting uh, to decide how do we celebrate this seminal occasion, this 50-year anniversary. And the core moray that we kind of applied to everything that we were going to do is that it is not us asking our community to give to us for our 50-year anniversary. It is what can we give to the community we serve in celebration of being around for 50 years. And what better way to give back to the community than getting young folks that are either interested in traditional arts and don't have an outlet or need that first introduction into the world of traditional arts uh, to understand the impact that it has already had on, on their lives. And so we wanted to extend this statewide. So we thought, what about bringing one student from each county and 55 students up here over the course of that those three weeks and let them study for free uh, the track that they wanted to be in, whether it was musical, art, craft, uh, storytelling and folklore, or even foodways. And so we wanted it to be absolutely free for them. We had some meetings with um, the administration of Davis and Elkins College, and they were immediately amiable to this idea. It was squarely in alignment with their mission as well. And so they offered to comp the dorm rooms so that the dorm rooms would be free for everybody. We then realized that meal costs weren't were the one thing that weren't really going anywhere. So to make this completely free, it would have to be the tuition, the room, and the board. And so we have been able to fundraise and so right now we have enough to uh, cover the cost of the meals and the resident coordinators, you know, the folks that will be staying with them in the dorms to guide them through this ex uh, experience uh, and also a, a um, person to be the head of the Augusta Academy through the time that it is on, on campus. Then when we continued these conversations with Davis Elkins College, they extended their uh, support even beyond that by offering each student that's selected, should they want to attend Davis Elkins College, they'll get a four-year $20,000 scholarship to do so by being selected for the Augusta Academy. And that scholarship is stackable on top of other scholarship. 
And so it's a real opportunity for West Virginia youth uh, that are looking for a liberal arts education right here in state. Where would you like to see this go? We would love to continue the Augusta Academy, continue offering this opportunity to the state's youth. We very much recognize that engaging youth and opening up these opportunities for them is squarely within the mission of our of our organization. Uh, we hope to not only provide opportunity, artistic opportunity here, but we also want to provide a sense of cultural belonging and understanding of what it means to be a West Virginian, our complex and diverse history, you know, and how West Virginia right now can trace its roots back to this diverse group of folks coming over in an attempt to make a better lives for themselves. Also, it's outward. It's it's understanding your own culture and your place and through that, understanding traditional cultures of, of the world. We're all brothers and sisters in, in this endeavor. And um, the ability to recognize this is how we do it. That's how they do it. Here are the similarities. Here are the differences. You know, some of the most success we have in this arena is in our food <laughs> programming. We just had a Chinese dumpling class, uh, cooking class last week uh, with a, a family that's, you know, lives here in Elkins and uh, they're from China and uh, they're going to share a part of their daily life with us, which is making these dumplings. And through that, uh, of course, we got to eat delicious dumplings, but we also provide a bridge of cultural understanding and awareness and acceptance and community building. And so we hope to continue that work in through the next generation, because we've got to be able to pass the torch off sometime. Seth, thank you very much. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for your time today, Bill. Thanks for getting back with me. The deadline for applications to the Augusta Academy is April 15th. It's limited to rising West Virginia high school juniors and seniors. For more details, visit its website, AugustaArtsAndCulture.org. Hospice care is often considered the final stage of care for people with a terminal condition. But what does it really mean? Not just for the person in care, but for their family members. WVPB News Director Eric Douglas has been exploring topics related to caring for older family members. He spoke with Catherine Calloway from Hospice Care of West Virginia. Give me the elevator version of what hospice care is and what it's not. Hospice Care West Virginia, our organization... We are the largest hospice organization in West Virginia. We cover 16 counties. Okay. We are inpatient and outpatient. We have a palliative component, and we have our hospice component. Palliative is for any stage of a disease process. It is not end of life. It is considered something that is another facet of someone's care so that they can improve their quality of life during their disease progression. Um, Hospice is end-of-life care. And when we think of hospice, we think of someone who qualifies for hospice or would be referred to hospice by their physician. Um, If they have, if you were to take away all medical intervention, if you were to take away medical intervention, you would think to yourself, I expect that person would pass within six months. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't do intervention or they don't continue to do medications. We have patients who come in and out of the hospice system. They may come in for a period of time. They may graduate from hospice. Mm. They may go back into hospice at a period of time. Um, One of the misconceptions about hospice is that you go into hospice to die, which is not the case. Or you go into hospice and you no longer receive care. Um, which is also not the case. Or what, what does it take to qualify to, be, to get into the system, mm-hmm. into the hospice care system? There is also a misconception that you have to have a referral from a physician. You do not. A physician should, if somebody has a primary care physician, you would hope that that person is part of that dialogue process. But anyone who wants to refer 
uh, a patient, a loved one, or themselves to hospice can call hospice and request for a referral. So that means that they call, they say they're interested in hospice, and we have a hospice nurse do an assessment. Um, Again, it goes back to um, more specific qualifying criteria, again, that that person has a life expectancy of six months without interventional care. What do you do for the families? What's the emotional support? Because this is a tough conversation. This is a tough situation to be in. Most people don't, as we discussed earlier, don't willingly want to face it. Mm -hmm. Well, hospice is there as much for the families as it is for the patient. Sometimes it's there more for the family than it is for the patient. And often the patient is ready. They are ready to... um, they are ready to take that next step. They don't want to go into the hospital again. Um, they are ready to be comfortable. They want their end of days to look like something different than maybe it had for the previous six months. And so that's where hospice is there really for the families to help bring that dialogue so that the patient and the family are on the same page. It's almost like having a mediator, again, to facilitate that dialogue. And often um, our palliative, our director of palliative services, Miranda Broyles, she's incredible at at this conversation, which is sitting down with the family and saying, okay, what did life look like a year ago? What did life look like six months ago? What does your day-to-day look like now within the past few weeks? And what are your goals for, for this loved one at this point in time? Uh, is there anything else that we haven't discussed that, that you want to talk about? I think the takeaway is that hospice is much more expansive than what an individual's per- the perception is um, from hospice many years ago. The services that we have to offer offer are multifaceted. It does not mean a withdrawal of care. Patients stay on their medications. We do active intervention. Anything that is meant to improve the quality of life of that individual is part of what we do. That was Catherine Calloway from Hospice Care of West Virginia speaking with Eric Douglas. The interview is part of Eric's series, Getting Into Their Reality, Caring for Aging Parents. To read more, visit our website, wvpublic.org. You've almost certainly heard the steel drum. It's a quintessential Caribbean instrument used in calypso and reggae and all kinds of pop music. But here's a surprise. Some of the best steel drums in the world are made in West Virginia. Bokoy's reporter Zach Harold has the story. It takes about 40 hours of work to turn this into this. And that transformation takes place, believe it or not, in an old storefront in Osage, West Virginia, population 395. This is the home of Manette Musical Instruments, maker of world-renowned steel pan drums. We're in the workshop with Keith Moon, who's working to tune what's known as a triple guitar steel pan drum. Down here, it's rolling flat. The octave above that is going sharp a little bit. Each of the company's five drum builders and tuners has his own small workshop. Aside from a few personal effects, they're all pretty much the same. They've got toolboxes full of hammers customized for building steel drums. They have propane torches to soften up the steel when it needs to be a little more pliable. And they've got these super sensitive instrument tuners. Keith's using his now to make sure all the notes on this drum are in perfect pitch. There's one workshop around here where the hammers don't ring anymore. This room has been mostly untouched for three years, ever since its owner left and never returned. This room once belonged to Ellie Minette, the founder of this company, the father of the modern steel drum. This is where he built instruments during the last years of his life. Uh, Some of this stuff he was just tinkering around with. Ron Justice, a friend of Ellie's who helped him start the company, gave me a tour. We put some of this, but this is just the way he walked out. It's the way it was when he left. Ellie's red toolbox and blue propane torch are still here. His hammers are laid out on the workbench, 
alongside a stack of promotional posters. On the back wall are some newspaper and magazine clippings. Read them and you'll learn how Ellie, when he was growing up in Trinidad in the 1930s and 40s, fell in love with steel pan music. He got what people in Trinidad call the jumbie, when pan music takes hold of your soul and won't let go. He started playing in local bands when he was 11, and as he got older, formed his own group called the Invaders. This is from their 1961 record, Trinidad Wizards of the Steel Drum. Even more than playing, Ellie's focus was on building steel drums. His parents were not enthusiastic, especially after he dropped out of high school to focus on his drum building full time. Although the steel drum is now Trinidad's national instrument, in those days, pan men were viewed as ne'er-do-wells. They call you a vagabond, they call you a bajon, and they call you no ambition. That's Ellie from a 2004 documentary called The Stradivarius of Steel, The Ellie Minette Story talking about that time in his life. And they don't want to see you. So why are you doing this? You understand? And what something was driving me to do it. And there was some inner sense that was saying, you keep going, you just keep going. You're going to make this work. And he did make it work. As he continued to build drums, he began to make significant innovations in the instrument. Early versions of pan drums were made from lightweight aluminum cans. Ellie was the first to build instruments using a 55-gallon steel drum. And the early drums also had domed tops. Ellie was the first to realize the tonal potential of a concave top, essentially inventing what we think of when we think of a steel drum. But there was a problem. Steel barrels cost money, and Ellie didn't have any money. So he started stealing his materials from a nearby U.S. naval base. Ellie's protege, Chandler Bailey, told me how that went. Um, he timed the guards going around, uh, patrolling the, the, the base, swam out into the ocean, past the breakers, and came back on, threw a couple of barrels into the ocean, swam them back on the shore, and he had a cold chisel on his bike, and he just chopped them off so that he, had, so that he could fit five or six on his bike, and then rode the 11 miles back to Port of Spain. This eventually caught up with Ellie. Some American MPs showed up at his door one day and took him back to the base. Um, didn't know what was going on. and, and uh, It's at this point someone hands him a phone. But it was the commander of the, of the Atlantic Fleet and says, uh, I know that you've been stealing my drums. I'll make a deal with you. I'll, even, I'll give you drums. You have to make the U.S. Navy a steel band. So Ellie flew to Puerto Rico to build the U.S. Navy some steel pan drums. You're absolutely right. That is the sound of guys in white Navy uniforms playing Stars and Stripes Forever on steel pan drums. This was the early 1960s. It was Ellie's first exposure to the United States, and it ushered in the next chapter of his steel drum legacy. In the 1960s and 70s, steel pan drums were gaining popularity in American music thanks to artists like Harry Belafonte, Liberace, and Pete Seeger. And as a result, universities and high schools started forming steel bands. But you couldn't just go to your neighborhood music store and buy a set of steel pan drums. You still can't. If a school wanted a set of drums, they would call Ellie, who would tell them how many 55-gallon barrels to order. And a few weeks later, he'd roll up with a toolbox full of hammers. But before he left for the next school, Ellie would give a workshop to teach people how to play his instruments. And that was his life for over 20 years. Traveling the United States, giving school kids the jumbie everywhere he went, like a Trinidadian Pod Piper. Ellie's travels eventually led him to Morgantown, West Virginia. In 1991, Phil Faini, the head of West Virginia University's percussion program, ordered some of Ellie's drums. Ellie built them somewhere else, but when he came to deliver them, he gave a clinic at the music school. Chandler Bailey happened to be in that class. Faini saw how much, how the rapport that Ellie had with students and how much joy he got out of, uh, uh, of talking about what it, what, it, what it was he did. He took Ellie to, to the Kroger and bought some Dove bars and, and gave Ellie, you know, they're sitting there eating their ice cream outside of the Creative Arts Center. And, and he said, what do you think about coming on here for a semester? 
It was quite the feather in the music program's cap, having the Stradivarius of steel on staff. But there was something in it for Ellie, too. In all those years he had traveled the country, whenever he'd go back to a school where he had taught people how to build and play the steel drum, he found they had forgotten most of what they had learned. Ellie, now in his 60s, realized that teaching at WVU would give him an opportunity to work with students long term, to pass on his craft in a way that was impossible to do as a roving pan man. So one semester turned into two, and two into four, until eventually Ellie became a permanent fixture in the university music department. I was finishing up school and he said, why don't you come downstairs and learn how to do this? And at that point, we were in the basement of the Creative Arts Center. And uh, he put a hammer in my hand and said, make that four inches deep. And he went away on a two-week tuning trip. And uh, I spent two weeks trying to make that so, like, the prettiest four-inch bowl I could. And he came back and he said, that's great. And he picks up one of the largest hammer he's got and he says, now you got to do this. And he just goes at it and beats it and beats it. And that's when I understood that, like, I don't see it yet. Building steel drums doesn't take a lot of super expensive tools. It just takes a lot of expertise and practice. These instruments are far more complex than they appear. You can have up to 33 notes on a single steel drum head. That might not seem like a big deal, but think about it like this. When you hit a note on a piano, you are striking a set of strings tuned specifically to play that note and that note alone. All the notes you aren't playing stay quiet because they're dampered with this felt pad. But on a steel pan drum, the whole head is vibrating whenever you strike a single note. That makes things incredibly difficult, especially when it comes time to tune a drum. Every single time you hit one note, something happens to the note beside it or in front of it or around it. It's wildly frustrating and that hurts my head. It, right. <laughs> but it is one of the most... Um... So yeah, building steel drums isn't just something you do as a fun weekend project. This craft requires years of apprenticeship with a master. And Ellie was finally able to offer that kind of apprenticeship once he settled in Morgantown and began working with guys like Keith and Chandler. Here's Ellie's friend and business partner, Ron Justice, again. His passion was not... How much can I make off of a steel drum? His passion was, I want to teach these guys everything that possibly I know that they'll be better than me and leave a legacy. In 2013, Ellie was getting ready to hang up his hammers when another steel drum-obsessed kid entered his life. Tune on the back, which would be a G. You would have a second octave, which would be that note. Ryan Roberts grew up in Virginia Beach. He got the jumbie in middle school, learning to play on a set of Manette steel pans his school inherited from who else but the U.S. Navy. Pan is the only thing that will be on my mind 24-7. When it came time to enroll in college, there was really only one choice. Ryan wanted to study at the feet of the master. So Ellie put off retirement, and over the next five years, stuck around the shop to continue teaching Ryan and the rest of the crew as much as he could about his beloved steel pans. Because he would walk around and go in all of our rooms as they're working, you know, knocking on the door, coming in. He'll, like Keith said, he'll tell you straight up if, if, if that's a good note or a bad note. Then he'll go to the next room and the next room, make his rounds. And then he'd go back in his room and just work on whatever he's working on. And even though, you know, he was in his 90s, he was still in charge. That was the way it was, and he would sign off on everything that went out of here. Up until the day he passed, Ellie was always talking about what he could do with each of us and how, like, if he had another month, can you imagine what, how much more information I could put in someone's head? But then Ellie's health took a turn for the worse. His apprentices, who'd become family by this point, would take him to the grocery store and to doctor's appointments. They helped him around his house, and they were with him in the hospital as his life ebbed away. Ellie Minette died in August 2018 at Ruby Memorial Hospital in Morgantown, West Virginia. He was 90 years old.
But his presence is still felt at the company that bears his name. Keith has picked up where Ellie left off and continued to train Ryan. Chandler is carrying on another piece of Ellie's legacy. He recently opened a studio next to the drum factory where, five days a week, kids and adults alike come to learn the steel drum. Picture your high school band room, but instead of saxophones and trombones, it's filled wall to wall with different sizes of steel pan drums. This is his Monday night band, consisting of eight grown-ups. They're learning the old surf rock tune, Penetration. The one statement he always said was, uh, what does it profit a man to keep what he knows to himself? And I, I think that's always in the back of, of our heads um, of how we can continue to make the art form better and continue to um, provide instruments to people as the art form con- is continually growing. For Inside Appalachia, this is Zach Harold in Osage, West Virginia, steel drum capital of the United States. Jesse Wright, formerly of 100 Days in Appalachia, contributed to this story. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Jesse Milnes, Tyler Childers, the Carolina Chocolate Drops with Rhiannon Giddens, and Amethyskia. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu.